Well, g'day everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Life in the Peloton and we are Tour de France themed once again this week. This is called the history of the Tour de France. Speaking about history, let's talk about our major partner, Rafa, our partner in the podcast this year. The company started in London in 2004 by Simon Mottram. But the name Rafa, where did that come from? That was taken from the 1960s cycling team Rafa, which was named after the aperitif drink company St. Raphael. This jersey is an iconic, awesome woolen jersey, and that's where it started with Rafa. That's what they were thinking, the culture of cycling, the story. That's what we're about here at Life in the Peloton, and that's what I've got for you this week. Let's talk about this episode, the Tour de France. I've been over here following the race for the last few weeks, and I thought to myself, I don't actually know the full story, the picture. Where did this race come from? How did this race come about? What are the ins and outs of it? How's it evolved over all the years? Well, to give you a quick background on what I'm talking about, the tour started way back in 1903, which makes this year's edition 120 years since the beginning. There's been some breaks along the way due to the world wars, but I thought it'd be really interesting to actually run through the full story of this iconic sporting event that capsulates the world every July, because it really is a sporting event that just includes everyone. Like I said, I've been in the box seat traveling around with Francois Thomasot whilst on this year's Tour de France with the cycling podcast. And I got to ask him about the history of the race. Francois covered 35 editions of the tour as a journalist, and he has a wealth of knowledge and love for the race. As we traveled to each stage during the first week, we sat down and talked about a part of the Tour de France and broke it up into four iconic sections. As I speak to you now, I'm at the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris flying home from the tour. My Tour de France has come to an end on the second rest day this year. But like I said last week, the thing that has kept me on track this year has been my AG1 travel packs. The AG1 travel packs are portion size, really, really easy to travel with. I've been using them every day. It's really simple. You rip it off, pour it into your shaker, add some water, shake it up, and away you go. There's no mess, and it's very easy to travel with when you're moving around and living out of a suitcase, just as I've been doing for the last three weeks. The best part about AG1 is it's an all-in-one. You don't need a bit of this and a bit of that. No, it's just an all-in-one comprehensive blend of vitamins and minerals, probiotics, superfood complexes. Making sure I'm completely topped up of goodness where when I'm on the road, my diet is a little bit lacking. I was getting out each morning for a run and when I get back, I'd have my AG1 mix, a quick cold shower and I'd get out feeling like I was ready to tackle the day. AG1 is not just for the elite sports people, even though I used it when I was racing. It's for everyone who wants to feel good and make sure they are covering their nutritional bases. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. Go and check it out, guys. But now to this episode, I thought I really knew about this race, but actually not a whole lot when it comes to it. And it was really great just to hear the whole story of the race in one place from Francois, especially while the race is on right now. So guys, this is a bit of a long one. I hope you enjoy Francois because he is a really, really great guest and a great friend and a special guy. Sit back and enjoy. 
Here is the full history of the Tour de France. Alright, as we're travelling over here in tour, at the Tour de France, in France, travelling to the stages every day, and I'm lucky enough to be travelling along here with journalist, legend, historian, wealth of knowledge of the Tour de France, Francois Thomaseau. Francois, before we get into talking about the whole race, just give everyone a bit of an idea about your background of this race and, you know, why you love the race. I covered my first Tour de France in 1986, so it's uh, so long time ago now, and I've covered 35. I missed uh, a few. Well, like every Frenchman, I was I was following the Tour as a kid on TV, and it's part of the French culture, you know. Well, I guess like cricket for some of you guys, <laughs> or you know, whatever you do when uh, when you're a Frenchman, you can't avoid the Tour de France. In July, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's on TV. You switch on TV. You want to watch something else? It's there. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you, you kind of bathed in 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 the, the Tour de France culture from a very young age, which means you you know, at the age of seven or eight, you know what a climber, a sprinter is, you know what a, what a breakaway is. I mean, all the the, the vocabulary, the peloton, the, the all those things are part of your culture. Gradually, you you you, you become a grown man, and uh, I was lucky enough to um, uh, to start with Reuters, you know, news agency, and in 1986, and they were looking for a sports journalist and. They, they sent me on the tour de France out of the blue and uh, well I was kind of yeah uh, I, I, I fell in love with the event almost <laughs> straight away because when, you, when you're a young journalist and you are a young journalist Mitch now <laughs> you, 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 you can't help but be amazed by this moving circus you know you go from town to town and people cheer you up you, you feel like you're someone you know you're in the car waving to <laughs> to, to, to guys uh, you know <laughs> millions of guys you know roadside and well you know it's, uh, it's kind of exciting isn't it <laughs> and, and there's all the excitement there's a you know I was a young journalist at the time and so and the the, the, the writers were my age you know so yeah. you, you had kind of a connection and then I grew and uh, uh, you know I grew older and I could have been their father so I had a different relationship with them now I could be their granddad you know <laughs> I could be the dad of the DS's so but I mean it's, it's kind of there's kind of a Tour de France family uh, and that, that that's you know, kind of a token of how, how could I say, emotionally involved people are with the Tour de France. That there's not a, a, a single ex rider mm. that doesn't, you know, who doesn't try to come back on the Tour de France in some capacity as a driver, as a consultant, uh, work for a sponsor. I mean, you know, you you go to the Village des Pas in the morning. You know, that there's about a eighty or probably or a hundred ex pros yeah. doing something there. Yeah, the Tour de France is addictive. It's sometimes you know, July is uh, yeah, it's kind of synonymous of uh, the Tour de France for a Frenchman. So that's how we got involved in that. Well, let's start from the very beginning. All right, Francois. No one knows the Tour better than you. Well, no one that I know that knows the Tour de France better than you. But I think this is something that a lot of people don't know, especially I don't know the ins and outs of the history of the race. The race is 110 years old now. 120, actually. Sorry, 120. Sorry, there we go. He knows the race better than me. Let's go right back to the beginning. 1903, Mm -hmm. the origins of the race. How did the race 
even start? Well, so actually at first there's, there's a dispute between newspapers, right? You, you had a, a very, very successful newspaper at the time called Le Vélo. And you, you must realize that at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century, the bike, bicycles were the new older age. There, mm. there was a new thing. You know, it was, a, it was freedom for the workers. You can go from one place to a, another without walking. I mean, you, can, you cannot imagine what it was almost bigger than the internet. You know, so mm. it was something new and really exciting, you know, freedom. You you could go anywhere and everybody it was a real craze for bicycles so they, they created that uh, newspaper called le vélo it was headed by a guy called pierre giffard and this guy was really you know mad about cycling he thought cycling would change the world so so this guy invented a, a number of races you know because very quickly cycling b- become competitive not, mm. not it was not just a means of transportation they realized mm, it would be nice if we you know start using the, this uh, machines for uh, sports you know because sport was getting you know very trendy at the t- time as well so yeah you, you know so of course you had track cycling which which was huge in France at the time but they, they had this idea that you know you, you could have races on on the road and the big one that Pierre Giffard started was Paris Brest Paris you know mm. Brest as well you can remember was the start of the Tour de France recently and the big race was this one you know it was taking place like every 10 years it started 1891 oh it was once every 10 years That's yeah it. they was they, were, they did 1891 they did one in 1901 and that's that's around this this period uh around 1901 that uh, industrials you know in the car industry and in the bicycle industry they decided to create a new uh newspaper because because automobile was you know coming up and uh, rivaling bicycles as a new means of mm. exciting means of transportation so they said let's forget uh, le vélo bicycles and let's get into more uh, you know more uh, well automobile so they created this newspaper called loto there was also a political dispute behind there uh, because the guys who launched the uh, loto newspaper there, there was a big scandal at the time with a french Jew, jewish officer called mm. Dreyfus was accused of high treason and it split France in two. Some guys were for Dreyfus, some guys were against Dreyfus. Le Vélo Giffard was supported Dreyfus. He's no said it's not high treason, he's been accused, you know, unduly. And the guys from Lotto were against Dreyfus saying, you know, he's a Jewish traitor and he should be, <laughs> and he was actually sent, you know, in prison abroad. So there was a political dispute at the start. And so Le Vélo and the, Le Lotto, when they launched their, you know, the new newspaper they said well if we want to really rival mm. le vélo <clears throat> we need to create our own uh, big event uh, on the road you know a reason for people to buy the paper yeah. and read and and also they 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 realized like you know everyone you know who worked on a daily knows that during the summer the sales you know plummeted so they they they, they needed some excitement in the summer season for readers to keep reading and so they they, they, they they were looking for ideas and there was a young guy who was the head of the cycling section in Lotto called Géo Lefebvre you know he was summoned by his boss which was Henri Desgranges at a restaurant called the Le, Le Zimmer and not far from the headquarters of the newspaper and he said so Géo do you have an idea? Was he a bike racer himself? Henri Desgranges was, yeah. Henri and Gio? Uh, and Gio Lefebvre was as well, yeah. But Henri Desgranges had been a very good for the time uh, cyclist. He, had the, he was one of the first, you know, holders of the uh, one-hour 
record. record. Yeah. So, and he was also the administrator of the Parc des Princes, which is a steel stadium in Paris. And, and it was an actu actually a track, cycling track. So yeah, they were cycling fans. They were already sports guys, you know. And so Géo Lefebvre they didn't really have an idea, but they, they, they had <laughs> been a race between Paris and and, uh, and Marseille the previous year in 1902. Paris and Marseille? Yeah. That's a fair distance. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but because at the time, you know, the distances were not what they were. Like Paris versus Paris, was, uh, it, it took two days to, to complete, you know, the sort of races you'd like to do now. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's a bikepacking trip now. Yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, and so all of a sudden, Joe Lefebvre said, well, how about the Tour de France? And so, and the Grand said, what do you mean? He said, well, we could, you know, have a kind of a month long race going from Paris to the main, uh, you know, big towns in France, around France. And the Grand at first said, said, ah, well, no, it, it will never work, you know. It's, and then he said, well, man, you know, it's not such a bad idea. <laughs> and that's what they said, that's how it started. At that, you know, address, I, I suppose, you know, the, when they first started exchanging ideas in that uh, restaurant, uh, you know, it, it looked a silly idea, but after a couple of, uh, you know, bottles of wine, they probably <laughs> said, well, you know, mind you, why not? And that's that's how it started. Well, tell me about those first couple of editions, because like you said, they were sort of working out what the race would be. And it was a little bit of, let's say, trial and error. But, you know, these first guys that did it, what did they present on the table? How did they make it attractive for people to come and do because it was it was pretty grand the idea you know that the stages were huge and tell us a little bit about well, the ins and outs yeah, of those first well, the, few editions the, there was already uh a, a, you know competitive cycling as i said you had paris brest paris mm -hmm. you had you had had a race to marseille paris roubaix existed you know the the first you what we call the monuments now uh you know a few of them uh, you know existed before the the 1990s uh, so you already had competitive riders like Maurice Garin, Lucien Lesna, I mean guys, you know, lots of Belgians, Italians, I mean the cycling was really the, the, the thing, like, I don't know, like uh, BMX, I mean it was new and it was for young people, so, so it was exciting, there was mm. a, a really a, a craving for that. So it was not too difficult for uh, Lotto to, to, to find guys to start the, the first Tour de France. They were, they were already professionals, you know, mm. so, and there was a, a bit of money to be made. Actually, the way they did it, because it's also something that's, that's little known, is it was long stages mm. because you, when you wanted to, you, 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 get, you went to, from Paris to Lyon and then from Lyon to, it was like over 300 Ks almost, you know, every single stage. But there was a rest day in between the the stages. You know, it's not like today. But I mean, there's there's been disputes. You know, in, in recent years about oh, rest days are there too many, too few. At the time, you did the stage and then you had a rest day. So, given the length of the stages and the speed at which they they rode, you can imagine the sort of bikes they were riding at the time. I don't know. They're probably 12, 13, 14 kilos. You know. Uh, bikes so the, these guys so they were actually starting the the, the, the stages at two or three in the morning so it, all the state the stages were starting you know at you know during the night but ever since the first tour de france there was a really it was a re real popular success people were you know getting up early or you know uh, you know going to bed late to see the guys start and to see the guy ride past and it was already you know the, it was mythical from the first from the first day what made it even more popular for the crowds were was to support your local guy yeah you know? so in the first couple of tours, you, you, you had a few instances when the local guy was in trouble <laughs> and you had crowd, real crowd trouble, you know. The most interesting tour, I guess, is the second one, the 1904, 
is the tour where actually everything could have ended there. There were riots, there were, you know, yeah. Because wasn't some of the crowd, so they wanted to support their local guys. So the way they supported them, they would sort of make it harder for the competitors, you know, they attack were, were, them in the night were, and yeah, things yeah, like that. They were that. putting nails uh, on, the, on the road or they were actually attacking riders. You yeah, know? I heard yeah, this. Like yeah, yeah, they did. Beatings and things like this. These yeah, guys were full uh, warriors. Uh, yeah, around, ne- uh, around the, in the area of Nîmes, there was a, a local rider called Payan and he actually had been like, uh, suspended the, the, the day before, you know, because... I mean, they were all cheating. Mm. I mean, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have mobile phones. So the the, the, the riders were, 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 you know, they were checks when control points, when, you know, checkpoints, when the, where the guys were supposed to come and sign. But what they did in between checkpoints, nobody knew. So so they went on cars, they went by train at times. <laughs> uh, every, you know, all sorts of cheating. And in 1904, I mean, the, everybody cheated. Half the field were, you know, uh, uh, sent at, at the end of the, 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 the tour. They were actually excluded from the, suspended from the tour. And the guy who finished f- uh, fifth finally won the tour. And, well, as I said, there were, there were gun, f- there, there was, well, almost gunfighting. It was like the, it was like the Western movies yeah. you know it was like so yeah uh, and it, it was so rough and there was so much cheating and probably a little bit of doping already that uh, Henri Desgranges at the end of 1904 Tour de France said it's finished you know I I'm, there won't be a third Tour de France and well there was and, and the rest is history because of all this sort of stuff one one way that I sort of understand is they reinvented it and started doing the stages a bit shorter and doing them during the daytime to help control yeah. this is that right yeah they, they, they realize after you know after a while that the, the fact that the, the, the stages started in the night and that, that, that actually could not control what the riders were doing that, the best way to keep their under control was to have shorter stages and uh, uh, you know hold the stages during the day uh, and that's what it, that's, that's, that's how they did it I mean if you take the first like 30 years of the tour or 40 years of the tour they were really trying things and not exactly knowing if it would would work or not in the 1920s uh, there were three yeah there was a, a few editions of the tour there were actually team time trials it's a system that they tried you know to see if it worked then of course there was also the, uh, the the dispute between should we have national teams in the Tour de France or you know brand uh Teams like we have today, and it's 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 a, it's almost a non-going uh, debate. Dis- debate. Yeah. Even today, that every so often you've got that that suggestion that the tour being the tour to to be different from the other grand tours, maybe it would be a good idea to 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 you know yeah to have the, the national teams in there. So yeah, and so you know, Desgranges was was trying things. Time trials were not at first not you know you know time trials have always been big in Britain, for instance. You know when they, they there were very few, uh, you know, town to town uh, in a bunch uh, races, but there was a tradition of time trials. They came rather late in the tour. Same with mountains, you know, mm. the mountains. Uh, well, it, it took, them, took them about yeah, eight, ten years to go to the Pyrenees and the Alps, but because they went to the Pyrenees in 1910, in the Alps in 1911. You know, at first they, they, they didn't know for sure. I mean, they, they started to have the first mountain passes, the Col Bayard. Uh, in the early editions, and then they went to the, the, the Vosges Massif and went up uh, Ballon d'Alsace and Grand Ballon. And gradually, the, 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 the kind of, you know, grand scheme of the tour mm. we see today, like, like, the, the, like, you know, stages in the Pyrenees and in the Alps, regardless of the, the, the year. Well, it's, it started in ni- 1910s, and that's when they discovered that actually the mountains, mm, 
added, ex, you know, extra excitement. Crowds were, 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 you know, found it more interesting. And uh, there was also at first, you know, the the, the, the GC was on points. So, mm. the, so the, what's what's now the point standings? What was the overall standings of the time? So they, they actually really tried that lots of different. Uh, formulas you know for the for the tour and well up to today when you know it's we're we're, we're at, a, at a time when the, the tour that we know today is kind of the results of the of the lessons of the past or sometimes not you know like uh, in the 1930s they they, they stopped the, the the brand at the time the the teams the brand teams were all you know uh bike makers right and obviously they were buying you know some some makes were you know buying the best riders and uh uh, they were bri- there was bribery. They were they were buying races. I mean, and that's when Degon said, you know, this is bullshit. We're going to change that. And if we have national teams, you know, there, there will be less money involved, and so will be, uh, you know, it'll be a, a, the competition will be fair, which was not exactly the case. And and it's also when because you know there were less mon- there was less money in the Tour de France because they they. They they put the, the the bicycle brands out of it. That's when they invented the publicity caravan as well in the 1930s. They had this idea that you know. If well, you how have, can we fund this race now? We yeah, need to we need to right. pay for these national right. teams, their food, right. their petrol. So so they had this idea to have partners, you know, mm. to have sponsors. So so that was very modern. I mean, the tour kind of invented an, a number of you know yeah kind of novelties in the world of sport like. Yeah, advertising, like because the publicity caravan was there before you had adverts on the in the stadiums or, or things. So, it, in many ways, very uh, forward thinking. Yeah, it was very forward thinking because they, it it had to be profitable or at least not not lose money. So. Yeah, so I mean, from these early years of the tour, there's lots of legends. I mean, you have pictures with riders with a fag in their mouth, you know. Uh, they were all eating together at, at night, so they were sleeping in schools, in, you know. And they were fueled by, you know, alcohol a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, sure. Red they, wine. They, were, yeah, they were red wine uh, every day, you know, uh, uh, at dinner. So they were all there, you know, and the, the press were, were eating with the, uh, the the riders. So everything was, it was a kind of a, even more of a big circus, you know, traveling together. Uh, sense of community and yeah uh, wine was obviously on on, 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 the, on the menu every, every every night after the stage. Tell us when the, the race was starting to get established, more about towards 1920, you know, the first yellow jersey came about. You know, even just after that, they, they allowed spare bikes now. As you said, it was sort of, it was changing a bit as I was starting to work the formula out. How did the, how'd the first yellow jersey come about? What's the origin behind the yellow jersey? It's actually, there's actually a dispute there. Because it, it's officially the yellow jersey was worn for the first time in 1919 right. by a guy called Eugène Christophe. It's actually I, I looked for the and it was not really advertised. You know, they decided that yeah, someone in the organization had the idea that the, the crowds on the road. You, you must imagine that at the time roads were there were lots of cobbles, were lots of dust. Sometimes the guys were covered in dust, and it was not 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 always obvious for the public to know who. Uh, was in the lead who was who was Christophe. how did they show the leader before that an armband or something they didn't know so they decided that uh, well maybe we should have a you know distinct jersey so that you know and 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 one that that, that 
you know people can easy spot and they, and they chose the the yellow color because the uh, Lotto newspaper was printed on yellow paper you know so it was the, the same as like in on the Giro you have a pink jersey because like at Zeta dello Sport which is the newspaper that runs the uh, the race was printed on on pink paper so that there was a, but I actually l- looked you know in, in the archives on I went back to that year uh, in the uh, in the archives of the uh, in the files of the Lotto, and and the the announcement of the uh, yellow jersey being created, it, it was in the middle of the race. Uh, it's just like two lines, you know. So yeah. it was not it was not like mm, we just invented the yellow jersey. It was just a new little you know uh, innovation, but it was nothing really um, grand. But then then later, you know, 20, 30 years later, when when so there's always the myth of the first yellow jersey. It was disputed that Eugene Christophe was actually the first guy to. Um, uh, wear the yellow jersey uh, because a guy called Philippe Thys was the first man to win three Tours de France claimed that the, a year before Christophe you know he, he, he already sported you know a, a yellow jersey well for his fans to identify him so uh, he claimed until his death that he was the first uh, holder of the uh, yellow jersey so but officially now if you, if you ask the uh, official Books of ASO, it was Eugène Christophe. So what was happening behind the scenes now, you know, with these with the papers, um, it was successful and it was really bringing a lot of attention. People were really reading it. You know, during the wartime, there were two breaks during the First mm-hmm. World War and the Second World War, but up until there, this formula they were working out, it was, generally speaking, it was it was to promote this paper, to keep it running, and it was, the, the race was, was the race secondary or was starting to take its own? To be honest, uh, Lotto was uh, the, the number one sport newspaper in France at the time thanks to the Tour de France and then it became what L'Equipe is today because L'Equipe is actually Lotto changed names after the war but it's the same newspaper but Le Tour yeah as you say took took a life of its own and became you know probably bigger than the newspaper that created it I mean yeah the, the success and the and the, 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 the popularity of it was, was huge in the summer you know when kids were not going to school any longer uh, for, for all the kids for generation of French kids you know they the, the the summer was the time when uh, oh that so the, you know the sun is back school is out and the tour is is back and the legend of the tour was even more I think uh, even stronger for the kids as they couldn't see it mm. if you see what I mean no TV so it was all they were following the race on on the radio uh, so there were there were you know, radio coverage of it. They were reading the papers. I mean, some newspapers at the time, not only Lotto, because the tour became so popular that all the other newspapers started covering it. And there were some magazines like Miroir du Cyclisme that during the tour would publish two editions, one in mm. the morning, one in the evening for people, lots of pictures. And so the the, the, the idea that the kids at, uh, of the Tour de France was the kind of... Uh, yeah, black and white, you know, photographs from from the champions, and then listening to the to the tour finish on 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 the radio, and they were often, you know, in the so not, not everybody at, at at the at the radio, so they were they were all flocking around the radio receiver, uh, sometimes in in bike shops, you know, and they and you had, you always had a guy in a village with a blackboard, you know, with the, mm. the name of the riders and what they were doing. So it was it was yeah, it was you know excitement. It was and and it was. As I said, probably even more powerful that it, it was like imagination, and from time to time, the tour came to you. You know, mm. to, came to the to your town, and that's that's that was for, for for kids. It was wow, magic. You know, all of a sudden, these guys you you'd, you'd seen pictures of. Uh, 
were coming to your town and you could almost touch them because, the, as you know, what makes cycling different from many other sports is that not only are the guys in in your town, but the, you, you can talk to them. You can, especially at the time, you know, they were in the morning. There was not no press village. The the bunch were coming. The riders were coming. They were having coffee and and a fag. <laughs> in the in the local cafes, so you could really talk to them. You could touch them. You can they can sign you know uh, pictures and stuff. And it was huge. And uh, I mean, my father, you know, he's now 101. He, 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 so his 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 idol was George Speicher, who's the, the guy who won the tour in 1936, I think. And um, yeah, so he, he had a, a chance to uh, one day, you know, during uh, that, that summer. Uh, he was uh, 14 at the time. He had a, he had the chance to to see you know Georges Pacher uh, in, in person. Yeah, in person, and for, for 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 them it was you know just just magic. So really, you know that the tradition of of Le Tour as a, yeah a magic moment of childhood and a magic moment of summer well dates back to yeah a, a century ago. Well, I wanted to talk about that first bit right up until 1939, where there was a significant break um, for the Second World War. And when we come back, we can talk about this next phase where I think the race really took a different sort of shape and we started to see um, the development through that next period. All right, Francois, this is part two where I think, you know, the tour had a nice spell from 1939 to 47 during the, the Second World War. But when it came back in 1947, the race returned. But this time, Omaray and Godet, they owned half the race itself each. Tell yeah. me about now, what was what was the race looking like now when it came back and, you know, it took it took a new sort of direction in a way? Well, first of all, it was split between Amori and Godet for a simple reason, is that, you know, the government wanted the tour to come back because it was a sign of return to normality. The tour was, you know, the symbol of fun, you know, childhood, long summers, and it took, for the tour to be back was proof that, you know, life was uh, returning to normal. Like, you know, the tour was already stopped by the First World War and then resumed. So, you know, it was really a, a token of, you know, not front, you know, life is, is becoming the same as in the past again. But it was split between Godet and um, Emilia Amori because Amori was in the resistance, you know, against the German. He had been part of the clandestine fighting against the occupiers. And Godet, as I said before, you know, was at a kind of a dodgy, I mean, he, he never totally resisted. He never you know, was, you know, in favor of the Germans in any way. But, you know, his, his situation as, at the end of the war was complicated. His newspaper, Lotto, had to change names because it kept being published during the war and during the German uh, rule. So he had to change the name of the newspaper. And when, you know, he decided that the, the government said, okay, go ahead. We knew, the new General de Gaulle at the time, he was pressed for the tour to go ahead. You couldn't have Godet given his mixed atti attitude during the war as, his, as the sole uh, you know, owner. owner and um, manager and director of the tour. And also, so Lotto became l'équipe, mm. and which is still the, the case. And uh, uh, Emilia Mori was the uh, owner of a new newspaper called Le Parisien Libéré, the liberated Parisian, which proves, you know, he was 
It was a newspaper that re- lots of newspapers after the war had the word liberated, like, you know, because all newspapers who collaborated during the war were taken over by new teams and, you know, to emphasize the fact that they were not linked to the Germans in any way. They added, so you had the, the Dauphiné Libéré, you had the <laughs> Parisien Libéré, you had the Midi Libre. And so it was all linked to the war, you know. So the tour resumed uh, 1947 uh, and it was a bit, so until probably 1952, Two, you know, when copy uh, uh, appeared in the, in the picture, it was kind of the mixture of the two of the past and the, and the future. Mm. Because if you take the guys who were prominent in 1947 tours and 1948, the the, the big guys were riders from you know, who had been good riders before the war. Like 1948, Gino Bartali won the tour. He already won the tour in 1938, ten years uh, earlier. Without the war, you know, it's it's. Everybody thinks that Bartali was so strong, so good, he would probably have won God knows how many, but, you know, more than two tours because he was at the end of his career in 1948 when he, uh, when he won his second tour. You had guys like Jean Robic who won the 1947 tour who was, you know, who had been in cycling for a long time. You had guys like René Vietto who was a legend uh, and, and at the <coughs> time France's favorite rider who had already been a star in the 1930s. So you had a mixture of mm. both. And, but the, 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 the pre-war generation was kind of wiped out uh, in, at the beginning of the 1950s. Then 50, 51, you had Swiss, uh, Kobley and uh, Kubler, one, one after the other. And, and Kobley, you know, the Pédaleur de Charme, was, 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 you know, a new generation of riders, more elegant, more, maybe the background was a little bit different as well. You, you, you started to have riders coming but uh, maybe a little bit less from the from the rural rural country France mm. and so you know th- things were changed fast I think the, the main change I mean the guy who brought something really new to cycling at the time was uh, Fausto Coppi definitely because the, because the way he prepared for racing you know he had doctors with him he had you know uh, the, the training the food the diet everything was taken into account we're getting into modern cycling mm. whereas before the war as we mentioned of course the guys were training of course there was training scheme and plans but it was still you know not very professional or scientific you know they were they were and and really copy brought something new uh, in terms of you know all the all the sort of training we, 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 we you still know t- to the day you know in the winter doing fractional things I mean all, all all those methods you know came into force in the 1950s not only in cycling in other sports as well but and copy was really the guy who introduced the new methods and also which which is as you know uh, which which will be you know decisive for cycling in the years to come I mean doctors came into cycling mm. for the good of it and the bad of it you know the, from the bright side of it and the dark side of it and there was a major change what about Fausto Cobby like I know you spoke about the professionalism there but also off the bike he was a bit of a superstar as well people liked to flock towards him he was a good looking guy he presented himself really well and they say from the stuff that I was reading he was giving like almost like a gold dust as these newspaper articles because he was great to write about he's a great sportsman on the bike but he was he was the full package do you think mm. that was something that in those days they were thinking about because you see it you know later on with Jacques Songotil mm-hmm. he was also in a similar vein um, yeah. you know was that part of the sport then yeah well it was it was the it was true in the past as well <clears> i mean you know in the 30s guy like uh, le duc or antonin main were also rather good looking guys with a you know uh, yeah, 
kind of star material, but copy was different. I mean, he was good looking, but he was he had a strange face, you know, very long <laughs> nose, and uh, and also I think the main thing, and that's what you need in sport, it, it was the big rivalry with uh, Bartali. Mm. You know, the, the copy Bartali, uh, you know, rivalry was one what is one of the great rivalries in the history of cycling and that's what you need same you know same nation the older guy the, the younger guy Bartali was you know very religious person who was actually a hero during the war he, he used his bike you know to, 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 to bring stuff to the Italian resistance he saved Jews as well so you know there were all these uh, all the ingredients of what the media like was there you mm. know what, what changed as well with copy is that if you take the big GC riders, you know, for, first and foremost, they're time trial specialists, you know, amazing time trialists. It's true for Anctil, it's true for Merck, it's true for Inno, it's true for, you know. Were they time trial specialists or were they just strong? Well, they were time trial specialists because uh, Copy was, was, was on the track very often. Yeah, okay. He went, he went after the, after the tour in the August, September uh, season, they were, they were all often going on the track, uh, you know, trying to tackle the world hour record or so, so they, they, they really had a tradition. Uh, I mean, the, these guys and, and Copy was really a, a strong, very strong track rider, which was not the, the, the case for Bartali, for instance. So, and also the, the you know, time trials were introduced in the Tour de France gradually, and mm. there were far fewer, uh, you know, in the pre-war uh, system than then gradually they would they would be more and more, and that they would take more and more importance in that. What emerged, as you say, they were strong riders, but what what, what Grand Tours suddenly showed was that if you're an exceptional time trial specialist, most of the time, if you lose weight, if you, if you take the right diet, mm, then yeah. you become a great climber because, I mean, you're not going to lose that much time in the, in, uh, in the mountains. So, yeah, that's when things started, start, started to change, I think. And we copy, and then the generation, they would follow Louis Zombobé, uh, and these guys, even Coblet, which I mentioned already. These guys were really a new generation of far more elegant uh, riders, better trained, and, and probably, as I said as well, with doctors and Swanier around them, uh, you know, maybe some of the stuff they were... The attitude towards doping in the mid-50s, the, the, you, you started having stories in the newspapers in the mid-50s about doping, you know, so there was already an awareness that something... or at, It wasn't frowned upon, was it? It was more just... They, 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 were, they were asking themselves questions. You know, you had articles in the, in the media asking, is that good, you know, that uh, mm. you had doctors, is that good if guys take the... the take, take, you know, um, you know pills and tablets to uh, improve that and so at the time the the the, the saying was that, you know but that's for their own good it's for their own health but the the debate already existed at the time but it, yeah it became more and more at least uh, there were already you know doctors and swaniers and, and and doping before the war but it was like i mean you know there, there's a famous story in 1923 when the hmm. pelissier brothers you know pulled out of the tour and and said they were taking uh, Take, taking cocaine, and, but gradually the the importance of doctors and pills and tablets were was more obvious. You know, it, it had to wait for the mid sixties for the the peloton and and the media and the public to realize, probably after Tom Simpson's death at the Ventoux in nineteen sixty seven, that there might be that doping might be a problem. So the evolution of the tour. 
followed the evolution of, of, of society because we, we, we for, for, for one thing, amphetamines, were, which, you know, which were predominant probably in, the, in those days, they were invented during the, the war by the German army. And at the same time, well, Germany won the, the, the football World Cup, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and also probably uh, it was for them a way to be back on the international scene. Kind of a post-war thing was the, the amphetamines, the corticoids, all this stuff had been discovered for the army during the war. And all of a sudden, the, the, those products were used. And, and the tour evolved, well, I mean, I mentioned doping because it's, uh, you know, and and doctors because it's, you know, Copy was the first guy to, to do that. And fortunately for him, he died, you know, young uh, after catching a disease, you know, kind of, they, they were doing kind of promotional tours in Africa, you know, mm. and, uh, and uh, several riders went, went there, Rafael, Gemignani, Copy, and I don't know, he caught, he caught a, a virus and died. But so the myth, you know, the Copy myth also comes from the fact that, you know, he also had a complicated love life, love life, uh, let's say. And so the, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> The, the people magazines of the time uh, they know. loved it yeah they, 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 they were all about mm, what what's copies love life like you know Anctil as well so we'll go to Anctil next but Anctil also uh, turned out as, as a very strange love life I mean they had at least two wives you know <laughs> as far as we know I mean it's, uh, yeah so, so these guys were kind of uh, all of a sudden kind of on top of being top athletes you know they, they were kind of larger than life they, they, they had something something different and and, of, and also gradually the, the media uh, technology Technology evolved, and the radio was all over the place. And more and more cameras were, were coming into the the race. And you know, in in the late fifties, you started to have the first kind of TV reports. I mean, tel television was pretty was almost nothing in France. There were a couple of guys in Paris had the TV set, but you know, gradually television came into the picture and was going to change mm. the scene totally. Well, exactly what you said. It, it was really changing because, like in nineteen fifty four, they had that the first grand apart outside of France, mm -hmm. up in Amsterdam. So the race was becoming more international. Uh, I know it was already international, but for the viewers, they wanted to push the race. Why did they? you think they decided to take the race up you know, outside of France? Was there the, the demand to get it a bit more into other... Was it money? Was it you know, to expose the race? I mean, there was lots of money in, in it already. I think uh, Amaury had, had money and the, and the Tour de France legend was spreading and, and, and in continental Europe, at least, you know, cycling was still a big sport, you know, one of the most popular ones. Uh, obviously, going to Amsterdam was kind of uh, obvious because, I mean, it's, as you know, a cycling mad country. I mean, you know, probably uh, bikes are the main means of uh, transportation. Transport, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think there are more bikes than, than people in in, uh, <laughs> in the Netherlands. But uh, I'm, I'm only half talking, you know. So, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was not the first uh, foreign town to, to have the tour because there, there had been stages, uh, uh, you know, across to Switzerland or even in the uh, early days of the tour, they were going to Metz which is now in France but at the time was in Germany so I mean there were, but yeah there, there, there was obviously an intention and the, and the fact as well that you, the, after Robic uh, and before Bobé came in you had Swiss winners you had you know uh, the, 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 and well Copy won it as well so it, it was more and more international and the, 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 the tour needed that uh, mm. you, you could tell from the start the French journalists sports journalists at the time they felt they had kind of, kind of a, a universal mission to spread the sport you know and they invented all these sports events as we say the Tour de France was invented by journalists the football the soccer World Cup was invented by French journalists 
journalist. The, 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 the European, what, what we call now the Champions League football, is, was also invented by a journalist from L'Equipe. So, you know, there was this, 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 this craving for international confrontation mm. in sports. And so the Tour de France, being such a big event in the mind of the journalist from L'Equipe, and had to spread and, and, and conquer other lands, and which, which it did gradually until, well, today, I mean, you know, we started from the Basque Country. I mean, like now every other uh, other year we start from uh, abroad, you know? So, yeah, so yeah the, the, the tendency. I've seen lots of, uh, if you go on, on YouTube, you'll, you'll see that there's there's a great film about this uh, 1954 Tour de France starting in, in uh, the Netherlands. It's in Dutch and, and, and it's really, it's I mean, every stage is uh, it's, it's black and white, but it's it's nice. It's really it's really cool to watch. So uh, you, you, you could tell it, it did it really did a lot of good also to 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 cycling in in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, they starting to have stars like Wim van Est, the first Dutchman to to hold the the yellow jersey. And so so you know, by spreading in a way, the Tour de France was spreading the cycling world. You know, around mm. and uh, and uh, the, this first, as you said, the symbol, the first Grand Départ outside of France, you know, showed our all of a sudden cycling which was like you know belgium france italy spain became all of a sudden far more uh, european and and then would you know gradually conquer you know other lands was this continual debate as well in this whole period as you mentioned you know the world cup you know the olympics these were national team events if you want to call it that and you know the tour de france was considered by godair as on that level mm. and he was continually pushing for the national team um participation but it was it was a back and forth period and over that period i think it came to a boiling point where they went you know we can't continually to fund this this is costing us too much money let's get some sponsors back in or where how did that all happen yeah, well, obviously, you know, when you you mentioned Godi, well, Godi was a journalist, you know. Okay, he was in a way also a businessman because the, the the newspaper and the races had belonged to his father and and you know and to his family. But when Am- Amory came, Amory was uh, was above all a businessman. You know, he was there for 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 the money. I mean, okay, okay, you know, he loved the sport and he was great to have the Tour de France. And but he was more, yeah, he was more a, a media guy. You know, a kind of a press tycoon. And and he, he well, he needed to. Say newspapers but it also I mean he couldn't afford the, the, a tour de France that's, that was losing money so how do you get mm. more money so as we said uh, in the 1930s the publicity caravan appeared the publicity caravan re- remained and was more and more present and you know and the, the sponsors and to be to be a partner of the tour was more and more costly but as you say uh, national teams who would pay for it the governments w- wouldn't mm. pay for it the, uh, the the sports federation might give a little bit of money but not much so I mean the, the the catering, the, the the lodgings, everything was the paid hotel, by tour yeah. hotels. Everything was paid by two organizations. So they they said, and also that there was not the evolution of the of cycling everywhere else. You know, mm. the, on other races, guys were riding for their uh, you know, for the team, which was a brand team. So it couldn't last for long. There was a there was a it was every it was really clashing with both Amoris. Uh, ambitions and the, the way cycling was organized. I mean, you know, the, the, these guys uh, for for the rest of the season were, were were racing for you know I don't know Mercier or Peugeot and and, and why would have uh, you know why would they race for the national teams on the Tour de France? It was kind of uh, uh, you know strange. So so gradually Godet uh, Amory took more and when the Amory family and all the guys around because Godet Godet gradually with age you know left other guys in charge of the of the tour and i'm thinking for instance felix levitant felix levitant was 
became tour di director around the, 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 that period. Félix Léviton was a journalist from Le Parisien. He was, it was the first first time he was not from L'Equipe, he was from the other newspapers, mm. so very close to the Amory family. And Léviton, he was, he was a very good business, businessman. You know, he, he had started before being a journalist, he had sold TV sets and stuff. So he was, he was very, you know, cunning in the, how to make money. I mean, it was obviously at the end of the 60s that, you know, the, the national teams could not, could not go on. And so they, they, for the first time since the 1930s, they went back to, yeah, to brand teams. And uh, let's say like, that, like, like this ever since. Look, this period here was the arrival of, you know, Jacques Oncatil, the first five-time winner of mm -hmm. the Tour de France. And it was starting to take a different sort of shape, as you said, with the, with the trade teams being involved, even though it did go back to the national teams for a couple of years later in the 60s. During that period, there was trade teams. The shape of the race at that point, I have the feeling, you know, and obviously not knowing them, but like it was, it was taking a different shape. It was, it was becoming this race that we more know today. Yeah, because also, well, Jacques Anquetil, uh, you mentioned him, was, well, in the same mold in a way, as I said, as Copy, very, very strong time trialist and very, you know, at first he was not a born climber, but it, it, it grew. Actually, he won his first one, you know, and it took him a, a few years to, to win a second one. Uh, very, very gifted. Same kind of rather, you know, elegant. And also, uh, you know, there was a huge rivalry, you know, national rivalry with Raymond Poulidor, who, who is, the, you know, uh, Mathieu Van der Poel's grandfather. And, and the, the rivalry between Poulidor and Antille was well, made the headlines in France for, mm. for decades because, <laughs> you know, you had the gifted guy, the guy who was winning everything, who was kind of the elegant, a little bit aloof guy and on the other side you had Raymond Poulidor the guy from the country uh, you know fighting hard and never quite making it I mean Poulidor perfect story yeah and Poulidor was so popular you know Poo Poo he's, he was all over the place everybody loved him and he's a guy who finished on the podium uh, you know almost every time he entered the tour not, not, not always but I mean you know he was uh, but he came second and third uh, several times and so he, he, uh, and he never held the yellow jersey once not, wow. you know, in his 14 Tour de France so he was yeah it, it, so the rivalry was, was was something else but as you say what, what changed as well was the, the reason one another reason why they they, 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 they you know scrapped the national teams is because there, there were you had so many French riders for one thing so you had to, to have France A France B and then mm. you had to have to the Southwest region and blah 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 and there were internal rivalries and, and, and you know obviously it didn't suit the organizers or the teams to have this kind of uh, uh, you know who select you know how the selections were made and everything it was it was really dodgy and also what changed is that the format of the stages you know they got shorter then as i said pre-war it was very common to have 300 400 case stages at times so you know it this was trimmed down to what we know now around 200 250 which was already they were even trialing some split stages as well yeah, yeah they? there were lots of started to have lots of split stages one of the reasons why i think felix leviton was one of the the, the fans of the split stages but because you got for you got for, you know if you have split stage you have a start on one stage finish in the split stage in mm. another town and then you start from another town and, go, and so we've got four towns paying you know perfect so, yeah so that was one of the reasons why they were doing it and yeah so so you were more time trials you know so some of the big uh climbs uh that were going to become legends of the tour the ventoux and Labe d'Huez, they went to Labe d'Huez for the first, first time in 1952. Fausto Coppi won uh, mm. up Labe d'Huez. And they, and they, and they, and they finally 
too hard and and copy was so dominant in that they said ah oh, no it's not a good climb you know uh, only the the the, the best uh, the very best will win up there so so for 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 a while they they they, they said no we, we we won't come back but you know that's the period when all these big mountains that become Isoar, for instance, you know, you had big fights between Kopi, Bobé, and these guys. So, so the legends of the mythical, you know, Tourmalet, Galibier started 1910, I mean, the 1910s, they were the first huge mountains that the peloton was stacked in. But these, these other climbs like Abduez, Ventoux, Isoar, it took uh, a while. It, yeah, it, 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 they really become really, really famous in the, in the 50s and 60s. And for Le Ventoux, even if it was used uh, several times before, Unfortunately, I should say, I should say, you know, Tom Simpson's uh, death on the Ventoux in 1967, you know, made a lot for the mm. legend of of the race. It's an important moment, the Tom Simpson death in 1967. We have to talk about it a little because then, you know, only two years later, a phenomenal rider would, you know, arrive on the scene, Eddie Merckx. Simpson's death was also the end of an era because all of a sudden the tour which was all about fun you know joy happiness childhood there was drama tragedy there there had been others but this time was on television you know yeah. which made made a big difference and all of a sudden there was a, a conscience that you know th things had to be changed uh was the tour too hard uh was doping a bad thing uh, should they have rest days as i said before the world they had rest days in between stages you have almost one stage one rest day but that that had gone you know in the 50s and 60s they were racing every day so you know the tour was was taking the shape that is gradually came to what we come to know now with you know time trials team time trials mountain stages sprint stages i mean all those you know little ingredients that made the tour now you know started to take shape and, and uh, once and for all in the in the 50s and 60s Well, Francois, it's time for part three, the golden era, racing with the legends almost, isn't it? Yeah, because I mean, uh, well, we had legends already in Fausto Coppi and we mentioned Jacques Anquetil, but in 1969, the summer of 1969, which you know was well, a good time for you know, probably rock and roll and other trends, but it was also the emergence of, yeah, the, the cycling legend and arguably one of the greatest sports persons of all time, mm. that is Eddie Merckx. Eddie Merckx won the first Tour de France he entered in uh, 1969, didn't win the first stage, but won the immediately after the second and swept the the, the board you know won everything that uh, that first tour he entered stages uh, all the jerseys available I mean a little bit like Tali Pogacar today you mm -hmm. know but uh, he was the first guy to you know sweep that, that many rewards hence his uh, nickname that came yeah, pretty early in his career of look the cannibal, you know. The cannibal, what a yeah, name. The, the, the guy who, yeah, who couldn't stop, you know, eating up, you know, swallowing uh, all the competitions he uh, entered. And uh, yeah, there was the, the, the beginning of an era that would last not, not that long. He didn't have that, so, such a long career compared to some others. On, only did the seven Tour de France, but won five. The second rider to win five at that point. Yeah, the second rider to win five at that point. <laughs> the question mark is always there because, I mean, he, he, on the seven he did there's also one year he took a he took a year off after you know having a saddle problem at the Giro uh, had he ridden more uh, you know could it 
he, he might have started a little bit earlier to do the tour and might have finished a little bit later. There's one year he took off, uh, you know, was it, you know, a good idea? I mean, anyways, uh, one five. And the, the, the most striking thing about uh, Merck's was, uh, well, still the joint, uh, as we speak, record winner of stages as well in the Tour de France with uh, Mark Cavendish. I mean, it, it's, it's easy. When you have cycling quizzes, you know, dear listeners, uh, and there's a question about records, I mean, 90% of the time, <laughs> the, the answer is Eddie Merckx because, you know, most, uh, I mean, he won all the classics. He won the three Grand Tours. I mean, I think almost every race in the calendar he won. I think the only one missing was the Olympics because at, at his time, he did the Olympics actually as a, at the time when he was amateur. But he, uh, but he, he didn't win those. And at the time, the pros were not allowed in the Olympics. So that, that's the only big void in his uh, uh, record. I, I think about, you know, apart from that, you know, the, 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 the yeah, that, that's the thing. It, it is far quicker to, you know, try and find out what he didn't win than to mention everything he won. <laughs> what was happening with the actual race at this point? And just from imagery myself looking at it, this was when it started to really... You know, the bikes were really appearing on the top of the cars. The teams, you know, were looking like the the more what we're used to seeing today. Um, you know, I'm not saying before that with, you know, Oncatiles we spoke about, that was starting to happen in those years. But, you know, Eddie Merckx, from what I understand, he was waiting for the national team stuff to finish so he could ride with his trade team there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bike sponsors. What was happening with the race at this point? What it, was the shape? It changed dr- dramatically. Return of the, uh, you know, tra- of the trade teams. TV was all was starting to be all over the place when you know it only started TV was prominent in the started to be prominent in the early and mid 60s and then uh, the, the tour became really a television show which was not the case before mm. so even more than in the past uh, these guys were you know household names and just because you saw their, their faces every day uh, in July on, on on your TV screen so obviously a, a real change of, 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 of period and it's an important it's a very important one the uh, you know the, the television aspect not only for the Tour de France but for most sport sports at the time he was starting even the Olympics that were not on TV started started being on TV it changed the whole game because more you know more ex- exposure means more, more sponsors mm. means more publicity more everything so I mean yeah and if you look at the evolution of uh, the Tour de France and ASO it was created by, by journalists from the written press the, you know gradually they, they, they turned to and, and now the, the head of the uh, Tour de France Christian Prudhomme is a TV guy mm. you know so, so I mean the, the, the shift from the written press to the uh, TV I mean the, the, the evolution of the media was also you know striking in the in the evolution of the Tour de France because TV had more and more power and more and more presence on the tour and it changed the way look uh, the, uh, nowadays I, w- I was uh, mentioning the first part that kids at the time you know only had radio and the newspaper to kind of imagine what the race was mm-hmm. like now you have live coverage from start to finish on various channels so the, per- the perception of the race has changed a lot also the race itself because it, it, it's, it's becoming impossible to cheat or to relax <laughs> or to there, there are lots of things you could do on the, on the race in the past that you can't anymore because you scrutinize there's, there's always a website who's going to, to, to write a story about it so that started in that era 
with the with you know the really the, the television becoming more and more prominent in there. I mentioned doping in the previous part. You started to have in uh, around 1966 and 1968 the first doping tests. So I mean this also changed. So there were strikes. You know riders were not happy with it. So I mean you know the, all the ingredients that would define the cycling in the coming years, trade. Mm. teams back in there so sponsors money tv attracting more uh, visibility more uh, uh, more sponsors more partners more money and doping which would you know so in the in in, in the beginning it, it, it was in a way you know good for the show because you know better performances better feats uh, the race went uh, harder and faster but I mean, there, there is. I, I mentioned a moment that we must come back to. With it, it's only two years before uh, Merckx won his uh, first Tour de France. As we said, you know, Tom Simpson died on Le Ventoux, and there was a, a kind of an awareness that you know, in, in terms of you know medical assistance uh, products, it was getting too far. But that, that's where we, we were at the time. You know, uh, doping was becoming a problem. Uh, for the first time in the past, who cared, you know? Yeah. Uh, TV was there, and, and, and trades and brands were back in the sport. So, obviously, as you can imagine, it changed everything. It sounds like now, you know, the race, with the trade teams back in, you know, the, the race wasn't having to pay for a lot of extra things that they were covering with the national teams. But not soon, not too long after that, there was the creation of the, you know, the infamous polka dot jersey that we see now. And this... I was wondering how this jersey came about, but it was actually about sponsorship money to bring a little bit more money into the race. They needed a new idea to keep funding of the race, you know, and at, at this time, you sort of don't, well, as, as a as a rider, as, you sort of don't imagine why these ideas come about, but at the end of the day, it's to get a bit more sponsorship money back into it. Yeah, and at the same time, to, to also add interest to the race, because, I mean, at the, at the time, you, you often had long, flat stages for sprinters that, that might be, there were less of a problem at the time, because you didn't have, you know, as I said, long life coverage, so uh, it was on TV like the, the, the last, only like the last half hour, maybe, you know, and sometimes it, not even live, like, you know, uh, shortly after the <laughs> stage so so you could you, you could afford to have long boring stages in the morning i mean the, the it didn't change a thing in terms of you know the publicity caravan and the risk you know riding past uh, spectators on the road but but then also they might there was probably the 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 uh, you know acknowledgement that to have just stage winners and the yellow jersey was not enough that mm. if you if you added other competitions inside the competition it made it more exciting so well the points classification had already existed but it created the points jersey before you know the green jersey and then they thought well you know we're, we have more and more uh, climbers you know and pure climbers winning the race and it started with Federico Barmontes in 1959 and in that era at the end of that era you know Lucien Van Impe would win all, uh, pure climber would also win the so climbing and climbers you know, had more and more uh, were more and more important in the race, and they were a different brand. I mean, a different breed, mm. uh, and they didn't get sometimes recognition they deserved. I mean, there was also a mountain classification, but they, you, you need something to like with the yellow jersey to recognize, to, to, to recognize yeah. them, and and so it was important to to get there. And as you said, uh, they, they they were looking for more sponsors, and and sponsors sponsoring the jerseys was was a great way to do it. And so there 
was a brand of chocolates called Chocolat Poulain, and they actually had. Uh, mm-hmm. When I remember as a kid, when you opened a, a packet of Chocolat Poulain, there was a kind of film inside of the the, the, the main package with with dots, you know. Uh, and so red, that, red dots. Yeah, red dots on. Uh, it was not actually white. The film, I, I, you know, yeah. it, it was like yeah, like silvery. You know, yeah, it's one also. That there are various versions of the story, but but normally that's so, you know. So it was kind of a trademark of the chocolat poulain. These uh, dots, and so they decided to create the polka dot jersey, which was a brilliant idea. Even to today, it's it's kind of even more showy and even mm. more uh, well distinctive, as they say. You know than the yellow jersey in a way. So yeah, it started there. Tell me about when now, just after this, it decided to come, well not decided, the race went up and finished for the first time on the Champs-Élysées. Mm-hmm. Very, very iconic to the race now. You know, it's, it's a procession now and it's really the closing of the race. Um, tell me about why they decided to come up there and, and this idea, how that all came about. Mm, yeah, so they, they were uh, until up till 1975, which is when they di- went on the Champs Elysees uh, for the first time. Uh, but the race was finishing on on cycling tracks, you know, mainly at Parc des Princes. There was another place, uh, another stadium, uh, yeah, east of Paris called La Cipal. That means the municipal. That's, mm. It was a municipal stadium, so it was called La Cipal. And La Cipal was becoming, you know, obsolete, so you couldn't use it. The Parc des Princes they couldn't use either because they, it, it was it, they were rebuilding it and it was rebuilt to become a a football stadium. It it is still a football stadium. It's still the the home of Paris Saint-Germain today. So it it was getting tricky to find the right, uh, you know, they didn't have the right track uh, for for that, and it's actually a TV journalist called Yves Mourouzi. He was like, you know, the one o'clock news uh, anchorman for the, the 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 first channel in France, TF1. A very popular figure at the time, and he had that idea. You know, he was he was he had those yeah he had a lot of influence. And one day he told the the the, the, the then president of the French Republic, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, oh, it would be a good idea if we could have a tour de France on the Champs-Élysées. Because was the, they didn't shut, they only shut the Champs-Élysées down one day a year, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, for the Bastille Day. You yeah. Know? So Bastille Day celebrations were huge. And uh, and, and actually, Mourizy was the guy who was commenting the, uh, you know, the march, the marching and the, the army and all the, the stuff during the Bastille Day. And, and that's when the idea came up. He said, well, well, why don't we have the finish of the Tour de France on the Jeans Elysees, a little bit like like we have the celebration of Bastille Day, and uh, yeah, the, the French president said, "Oh, it's a, it's not a bad idea. I, I'll talk, I'll talk <laughs> to the uh, guys at the Tour de France," and they, they thought it was a good idea as well. Uh, and, and if the French president said we can do it, so. Yeah, yeah, they said, well, let's do it. And that's that's how it started. And it's still there. A couple of years later, sort of like around 1977, that was when, you know, Emilien Omere, he, he dies, he passes away. He And then now the race then is then presented for his kids, really. You know, it's like, okay, well, this has been the guy who's sort of harnessed this race as well as Godet. And now it's he's passed away. The new sort of evolution of part of, you know, it's also got to do with the riders, but it's also got to do with the, I guess, who's running the race with a vision of where it happens. And for a long time, it was a million. After his passing, and it was it was passed on to his, his son, Felipe, and well, that was a bit of a battle. I don't know, do you know much about that whole situation? Yeah, the thing is, Philippe, Amaury, so the, the son of Emilien, he was more, well, his father was as well, but he was more of a newspaper guy, you know, he was more into, um, and, and, and his, his, uh, 
he was he was less involved, I, I guess, into the cycling part of the, his, his empire than 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 his father m- might have been, and and. Uh, and and there was there was social unrest at the time in Le Parisien because of well, as often in the media the technology was evolving, uh, it, it, you know th- there were more and more color in the newspapers the way things were printing the first computers were coming and so all the all a generation of uh, mm. you know printing uh, workers were were becoming redundant or so there was a very strong and very hard strike. Uh, in the in the late 70s at Le Parisien, it lasted for months. The the newspaper was not published for months. But Philippe Amory didn't kneel. He said, "Well, you know, that's the way it is. That's the evolution." <laughs> and so he, he kind of won the uh, the, the the social uh, battle with the unions at the at the time. And uh, but this created a kind of a, a of a of, of a drift between l'équipe Le Parisien, who used to work together, and Le, Le Tour de France. And uh, and they they became they were still in the in the in the mix but they became really separate entities and they had, had, had you know working less together uh, in, in a way and uh, and 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 so uh, for, for until the, the, this time was called la société du Tour de France mm-hmm. and and the the, the status uh, gra- gradually evolved for uh, you know for the uh, la société du Tour de France to evolve into what we know today as Amaury Sport Organization. So yeah, it, it was. I think. I think the, the the fact that, and so Philippe Amaury didn't, you know, uh, knew the Tour de France was important, but he really, you know, his focus wasn't there. Yeah, focus wasn't there. So it, it you know, he gave it to other people to to to, to take care of. <laughs> Godet was still there until you know, mostly until that. But in the same time. The, uh, Philippe Amory named real managers who were not journalists, who were not into sport, to try and develop the brand, Le Tour, and to try to make it something different, more p- profitable. And, 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 you know, gradually we saw the publicity caravan evolve. The, 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 it's also the time when TV rights appeared, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. There was no TV rights before the, the 1970s. I mean, you, you didn't let the TVs didn't have to pay to... Uh, hmm. it, it was almost the other way around, you know. The, you pay the TV. Yeah, sports pay the TVs for, for them to come. <laughs> and it started to change uh, during this period. So, so Philippe Amory was one of, of the actors, you know, who, 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 well, who led or, or followed this, this trend. And so, yeah, it, it, it changed the tour totally it was at a pretty nice time too because at that time you know it was the emergence of the badger um you know great nicknames at this time bernard you know who went on to win five tour de france's as well you know the french legend it's uh, tell me a bit about this era as well um because this is a really important part for the tour de france for france but also the real the development this is sort of really leads into this modern era that we know today mm-hmm. so so Merck's Kind of, you know, a, a, a champion like Merck is kind of is, is in in a way very good for sport, and in a way not very good because when you got a guy who's so dominant, mm. uh, it can you know it makes the competition far, a little bit less interesting. So, well, of course, you know, uh, Merck had rivals like you know Yup Zotmelk and uh, uh, Luis Ocaña who, fi- who finally won one one tour, the tour that uh, Merck's missed. But you know, but for the French public, and it's very important the French public for the Tour de France. The, the after the, the end of the Anquetil and Poulidor era, there were no mm. more heroes. So you you, you re- they badly needed you know uh, an, another uh, outstanding uh, French rider, and and yeah, and, and Bernardino uh, came into the the, the forefront. Uh, it, it's actually in in no in no spirit you have two 
you have to uh, name so, uh, a guy that that's Cyril Guimard. Cyril mm-hmm. Guimard was his team manager, and he he'd already won the Tour in '76 with Lucien Van Nip. I mentioned Lucien Van Nip, who was actually the first holder of the Polkadot jersey, and uh, and and Guimard was a former ri- uh, rider, rather successful. He, he, he you know he competed for GC in the Tour, but he was more, more a sprinter, and he. he, he <laughs> Yeah, that's true. He, yeah. He, he was a sprinter, but one yeah, there was a couple of years when he also you know was up there in the GC. In the GC, yeah, and he, he was he was really innovative in a way. He, he came with new ideas. So we mentioned copy, and Guimard came with he was the first you know to have tests in uh, uh, you know in, in labs, hmm. you know uh, uh, all sorts of aerodynamics. I mean, he was he introduced you know lots of technical evolutions. He was a lot into that stuff. And and so the meeting between Guimard and Ino was the the yeah was the 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 the, 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 the magic f- formula you know uh, Ino had, had already Ino started as a runner mm. he was not you know really in, yeah in, in his in his youth he was a more long distance runner in Brittany and he, but, but like a lot lots of Bretons with the tradition of Jean Robic Louis Bobet you know you can't avoid uh, riding a bike when you're in Brittany so it, 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 it's one day you know friends told him yeah oh well. Come with us, you know, on, on the on the on the cycling race. You know, took a bike, you know, and uh, went for it and uh, it's killed just, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Killed everyone. It's a story that's c- quite common with, with with champions, but it's 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 actually what what happened. And from then on, I mean, his uh, evolution in prize was stratospheric, and he he, he rode the tour, won it uh, seventy eight, and then he was like, almost like Bert. He's one of the guys who who nearly won everything. You know, the, yeah, he was so called. He was called the Badger because of his face. You know, he, he had this kind of uh, could I say, you know, uh, kind of. <laughs> lean uh, and he was also a fighter you know badgers are not very uh, you know kind of rough animals and the badger was was not, was not a nice guy you know in the race he was like a, the real boss of the peloton it's funny because I, I, I've met and talked to uh, Ino many times I'm not I'm not going to say we're friends but I, I know him uh, rather well and there was a time when I was working for ASO's website you know that we, I was I was asked to go at, after the stage especially in Paris and ask uh, the Badger about what, what he thought of the next what, you know the next stage was going to be and so uh, but he, he was he was absolutely dreadful as an analyst of cycling because it, the, the tactics he would use yeah. didn't apply to, to 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 normal riders. So he would simply say, "Oh, if I was whoever you know, Roglic, Pagashar, well, I would attack from the gun and win the stage." You know, well, <laughs> yeah, you you could do that, but maybe cycling has changed a little bit. So yeah, he was he was a little bit like like Merckx, a kind of phenomenon. Uh, and you know you, you can't really compare him to to anybody like all these champions to anybody else. He could uh, unbelievable uh, time trialist. He was uh, he, he didn't lose lots of time in the mountains. Sometimes he you know he was steady and uh, you know uh, kind of yeah bullfighter. You know in in the climbs never giving up. And and probably his best wins actually his most spectacular wins were. Uh, in the classics, you know, he won probably the best, uh, uh, the most grueling edition of Liege, Baston Liege in the snow. Uh, almost everybody else gave up. He was freezing cold, you know, and it was, you know, that's, that's <laughs> typical, you know. Did this, this character, you know, what did it do to the Tour de France, but also, like you said, the French needed someone like this. This, yeah, I think this is what really almost injected this beautiful sort of 
storyline energy into the race. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and also the thing is, as, as I said before, you, you need a rivalry and the rivalry came pretty quickly and within his own ranks. At the end of his uh, career, you know, had to face two guys who, who were in his own team. Uh, one was Laurent Fignon, who, uh, who won two Tour de France in '83, '84. You know, being in the same time in the same team as, as the, the Badger uh, for the first uh, year, and and then Cyril Guimard was kind of a visionary. Uh, you know, at, at pioneering views. Uh, he, 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 could, he could feel that cycling was becoming more international. You started, started to have Irish riders coming in. Mm. Uh, you started to have, uh, yeah, and, and Americans and uh, Russians and all sorts of... And Guimard with an eye for the, the, the good riders, uh, spotted this young American called, called Greg LeMond. He, he made sure he came to France, because at the time that's the way he went, you know. You were Australian, like Phil Anderson, mm-hmm. you were... You were Irish, you were British, you were you you you, you would come to France, uh, race with ACBB, which was a cl- club in near Paris, La Cébille, Boulogne, Biancourt, and so all these guys, you know, were really coveted by the uh, the European managers, and and Guimard spotted these guys. So all of a sudden, Ino found himself with a younger generation coming up, and 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 also that's that's the moment when. So actually, he won his last tour in 1985, and it's still to the day the last French win in the Tour de France. And what what happened actually is that, in a way, Guimard kind of dug the grave of French cycling by mm, bringing, his, yeah. bringing in new blood from abroad. <coughs> uh, and 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 I, I think the next step, uh, yeah, Greg LeMond is probably the the man who took the Tour de France to another dimension, which is global uh, interest. Francois, part four, pretty much from 1988 right up until today. I've sort of nicknamed it the doping era, and I guess whether that's right or wrong, some of this period has got a bit of a black cloud over it because of the doping that was going on. And interestingly enough, to start this discussion off is when LeBlanc sort of came in charge, the new race director. Tell me a bit about how all that came about. Well, it's actually directly the result of um, a doping scandal. 1988, uh, Pedro Delgado won the Tour de France, and it was found out that he had used a banned product, but the thing was was the product was on the uh, was a kind of a steroid uh, the, the, the product was uh, actually on the IOC uh, list of banned products but it was not on the UCI list mm. of the banned products so it was actually it was finally cleared because the, the substance was not actually you know forbidden by the UCI who was written the tour de France so Delgado won the tour but there was already kind of a shadow of a mark you know on his victory and the way the organizers handled the the, the scandal was you know was seen as uh, not very professional and Jean-Marie Leblanc was uh, the, the, the head of the cycling department of L'Equipe the newspaper and uh, he, he wrote you know very very strong columns against the organizers after this doping scandal despite the fact that as we've said they belong to the same Amory group mm. but it was very very outspoken 
spoken about you know how how the whole Delgado scandal was uh, handled. Well, they sacked the, um, the 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 directors of the time who, who would only be there for one year actually because they did replace Felix Leviton who was uh, you know who was there for more than 20 years and uh, and Leblanc because of the, of the stand he had taken against these guys and against doping was uh, named the new director of the Tour de France. At this time it was becoming a little bit more open to the world you know from what I understand you know with Greg LeMond there you know the US sort of audience became more involved um, obviously in that time we had that you know still probably the the best Tour de France finish, you know, with that closest victory from Greg LeMond on the Champs-Élysées. The NBC was getting involved. Was it becoming, like, much more world-recognised and more interest from, you know, especially a country like the USA? Yeah, I mean, Greg LeMond kind of opened... I mean, there had been uh, English-speaking you know, cycling stars in the past. I'm, I think in Tom Simpson that br- brings us back to a doping, unfortunately. Uh, but but Greg LeMond kind of opened, yeah. I mean, mm. NBC went into, you know, big American networks started coming to the Tour de France. There was rumors at the time that that uh, a big Hollywood movie would be made, <laughs> you know, from the Tour and on the Tour. But they, they quickly found out that the Tour de France, you know, uh, drama is, 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 is was actually much better in real life yeah. than than what a, what a Hollywood with movie could have done so yeah there was a real opening there was also no, bear in mind that in 1989 was the the end of the Berlin Wall and uh, Russian riders started to come to Italy to 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 ride so you had guys from the Eastern Bloc who were amateurs mm. and up till till then that started coming into the pref- professional ranks yeah so so that actually the 1989 Tour de France which as you said was won by a uh, uh, the slimmest margin by Greg LeMond, so it was a dramatic story because he was back mm. uh, in action after a hunting accident that nearly ruined his career <laughs> and his life. The, the American beating the Frenchman, you know, on the Champs Elysees about eight seconds marks maybe the the end of an era. Like ah. the world was, 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 you know, the world was, uh, world, yeah, the world was beating. Uh, France, you know, the the uh, and and no Frenchman, as we said, ever won, ever came any that close to winning the, the Tour de France again since. So so obviously Greg was uh, a guy who really played a major role in the uh, globalization of cycling and of the Tour de France for sure. But that period was also the one when from 1989, 1990, we started to hear about a new drug, erythropoietin. Nobody knew what it was. Uh, and of course, it's, you know, EPO. And yeah. and, and uh, there, there, were, there were already, you know, in 1989, 1990, we saw guys like Steven Rooks, Gatian, Tunisa, who were Dutch riders, who had been kind of classic rider type, type riders, uh, one day race type of riders. And all of a sudden, they were climbing yeah. uh, up the mountain. So they were, they started to a kind of a doubt and Jean-Marie Leblanc was one of the first ones to I remember he, he wrote a column in L'Equipe he was still director of the Tour de France but he still wrote a column in L'Equipe saying new drugs are circulating and they're, they're changing the very nature of the sport because you know riders who are not very good or who are not pure climbers all of a sudden become uh, exceptional so th- there was awareness that something was going on were they trying to change the race format to sort of you know I don't know um, go against this way of the, you know the 
the doping or, you know, shortened stages or, you know, I don't know how they could have gone about it, but what was happening behind the scenes when it came to the Tour de France to sort of attack this? Yeah, so, so there, there were, con- there were con- concerns about doping. They were aware that, you know, it was getting out, out of hand. And so there were, there were lots of campaigns to have shorter stages, mm. to have more rest days, because the... The idea that was spread at the time is that cycling is too hard and the Tour de France is too long, too long stages, uh, too may- maybe too many mountains. And so, yeah, since that period, there's been a tendency to have shorter stages and we re- we've reached a stage now, you know, when mm. actually uh, uh, the, the, the type of stages that are favored by organizers in the mountain is to have shorter stages because they're, they're more e- eventful. Also, for and unfortunately, for the sprinters and the big guys like you or Mitch, <laughs> uh, you know, there's also the time cut issue that that makes it more difficult for sprinters to or for the gruppetto to get to the finish on time. So yeah, it's it's more exciting. More things happen, and 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 probably it, it doesn't you know eat up as as much energy in in the riders because at the time with EPO, the, we we always mention the winners, the guys who took doping to yeah. to win. But actually, most of the peloton, most of the guys who were taking stuff, you know, back in the 1980s or 1990s, was just to survive yeah and uh, and to and to still do their job so we, we, we always see you know doping from the side of the of the cheaters of Lance Armstrong or you know guys who might have won the tour Bianca Reese the guy who confer who confessed you know having mm. taken stuff to win but most of the guys actually were doing it, it was it was just to keep their job and uh, and that that's when it, it, it went really bad because in a way everybody had an interest in, in doping uh, so for for the the organizers the, the 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 question was how can we you know from our yeah. point of view not not only crack down on drugs but you know offer a, a, a terrain where doping w- w- would would be less necessary than it was at the time. Well, the 90s were dominated by Miguel Indurain, who was the you know, the only guy to win it five times in the ro- in a row, the Tour de France. But I think he started this sort of transition where the the focus on time trialing as a GC man sort of started. And since then, we've seen all GC men become these ultimate time trialers. I'm not saying before they weren't, but I feel like Miguel Indurain, that, that was something that he really harnessed and started. And he was a, an absolute a killer in the time trial. I think then started to... F- you know, shift the focus when you're talking about the racing. I don't know. Do you think this is why they've maybe included some big time trials now and team time trialing became a discipline that people are interested in? Yeah, the, the, there's been ups and downs in the in the relationship of the the UCI and of the of tour organizers and yeah, grand tour organizers towards time trial. That there's a kind of a shift in the other direction now mm. because Christian Prudhomme for one doesn't like time trial that much and so uh, in this tour the, the 2023 tour there's only one time trial and it's pretty short uh, in those days you had long time trials I remember like 50k's what was was often the rule for time trials uh, maybe Armstrong was a good time trialist as well you know kind of you know gave the idea to the organizer that he was the problem with time trials is that they give such an advantage to mm. the strong guy that they, they make they almost make the the battle in the mountains irrelevant because when you know when someone took a, a minute and, and a half or two minutes or two minutes uh, you know 30 in a time trial it was very very difficult to take them back uh, in the mountains well I think what Indoran brought more importantly in uh, in the tactics around the, around the, the Tour de France was that he was a guy who was really 
preparing almost exclusively for the tour, a little bit for the World Tour as well, because he was, you know, in the wake of the tour, you know, in the aftermath, you, you know, on the, the, his, his Tour de France form, he could go on and, and, and perform in the World Tour, which he didn't win actually but well he, he was you know he finished top three but the thing was Ingren I think was the first guy to really he rode very few classics he rode he didn't ride you know lots of he could have won like Classica San Sebastian and, and uh, you know I think he did but all Liège Basson Liège or the sort of I mean it was idly but he didn't you know the, the Tour de France was his one and only goal and he was prepared for that and that's what happened next you know mm. uh, Armstrong and all these guys they were all going from the, the the thing was you know preparing with races like Le Dauphiné Paris or uh, the Tour de Suisse uh, but it was the the the, the, the only goal was the tour uh, which was new because in before that Merckx Copy, you know, they were they were going for everything. They were riding the Giro, they were riding the Vuelta, they were winning classics, which Indurain was not doing. Mm. So that that's something new he introduced, mm. and also introduced well, what what you could call the, the the you have the sprinter train and introduced the GC train. The fact that in the mountains you had all these Banisto team, the guy you had five, four or five guys leading the way up the mountains huh. and setting a pace that was so hard that nobody else could follow. I think that was. I think the Banisto team were the first to introduce that way of riding, or at least to, to make it systematic in the mountains. The thing was high pace; nobody can attack. And it, there we go. And obviously, it was taken back by U.S. Postal and then by Team Sky. That that, that sort of tactics was kind of you know introduced by Indurain and Banisto. Yeah, it's amazing. I didn't actually know that about Benesto. That 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 was the sort of the way they parved the way. And obviously, things as technology and you know um, tactics got more attuned. We've seen that right up until you know Team Sky after the US Postal was it became much more in tune we're seeing it today with Yumbo Visma um, maybe it's not as organised as that where they're just purely riding the front on climbs they're introducing now because of these new stages I guess a lot more different tactics sending guys in breaks um, you know and then catching up and then using guys later on in the race so it's still morphing um, this idea of using your team today yeah I think I think cycling has become more of a team sport we, we, we always say you know it's an individual sport you know that that's been raised you know in teams but 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 cycling that effectively became really became a, a, a team sport in the in the 1990s I, I believe in the past they were they were picking the best guys you mm. know and let's see what happens you know they were not like you had domestiques of course but the role was more to protect from the wind you know in the in the echelons and go for the bottles but then in the in the mountains the the, the big guys were left to their own devices mm. they were they were they were much less, you know, there were there were fewer lead out guys. There were all, all even in sprints. The, the way they were organized, uh, sprinters like Rick van Steenbergen or the Rick van Loy or the 1951s or Andre Darigan, they didn't have a lead out guy. Mm. You know, they, they they went they went for it. You know, by, by themselves. So so gradually in in all those years, the the the, the strategy, the tactics, and the, the race techniques we we find like you know. Sprint train, sprint, sprinter's train was really developed, and by, by Mario Cipollini. Mario Cipollini, I was looking, yeah, and the Psycho team. That that's that's when they, they really started doing that mm. in a, in a systematic fashion, and that's when uh, you know sprinters started to really uh, depend on their train. Uh, whereas in the past they were 
several ways to do that. So this strategy of sprinters train, lead out trains, GC trains, uh, all came to the fore. Tell me about what was going on with the UCI and the ASO at this point, because the UCI during the, in the 90s there and early 2000s, they created also like a world, sort of like a World Cup series and didn't really get into the Tour de France, the ASO. What was going on between this sort of battle or I guess war almost, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that as far as the organization of cycling is concerned, the, the 1990s and the noughties were absolutely essential to uh, well, what, what we know now, and namely the World Tour and the monuments and all that. It took a lot of time for organizers and the UCI to found an agreement to organize the calendar. Uh, in, in the 1980s, uh, Hein Verbruggen, who was the, the head of the UCI, tried to inst- impose a new system, and mm. so we were okay with that, uh, kind of a workup system like Formula One. Like, uh, you know, uh, you had points, uh, you, you scored points in each of the classics, uh, and they, they tried to have classics in the, the, some of those workup races in every country. There was one in, 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 in Britain, one in Germany. You know, they, they really tried to have, a, yeah, to, to emulate Formula One. Mm. Uh, at first, they so agreed, and then after a while, they, they, they decided, with the, uh, you know, it, it was against their best interests to have a, a series that they didn't run. Because the reason why the UCI wanted this World Cup uh, series was to be to, to own the series and to and to own the TV rights, mm. you know, like Bernie Eccleston in Formula One. You know, uh, uh, it was owning the, uh, the the rights. So there was a real war between Verbruggen, the UCI, and ASO over TV rights, and uh, and that's when the struggle started. But ASO uh, main main uh, asset was the Tour de France. They own the biggest tour in the world, and whatever they didn't need the UCI no, really, did they? They didn't need it, and what they did was to hamper the UCI plans. They had already organized Paris Roubaix, but they, they, they started buying other races. You know, Paris Nice were struggling. It was run by another uh, company, another family from the Yamori group. It was the Lelio. They bought Paris Nice. Uh, they, they they bought the Dauphiné Libéré after a while. You know, Critérium du Dauphiné that belonged to another uh, newspaper group, the Dauphiné, of course. And they, they started to buy some of the and organize some of the Belgian races like Liège, uh, and and then they also took shares in the Vuelta. So they decided to spread, yeah, to make it impossible for the UCI <laughs> to, to to create a a, a kind of rival uh, circuit. And and that there came a, a there came a moment when actually the ASO was actually ruling the sport. Mm. Uh, so so it's a sport that was kind of privately owned, a little bit like the NBA have their own rules and their own uh, they, they, their own basketball even if you've got FIBA which is the, the International Federation and the rules are slightly different but the, but now let's face it the NBA effectively mm. even even rules the rest of basket, uh, amateur basketball and the NCAA and everything so that's mm. the, the same with ASO so the, the problem and also there was a problem we, we mentioned doping doping was also another issue because uh, the UCI of course was, was trying to you know, crack down on doping. But the problem at the time with many sports is that federations was both both judges and and parties to you know in doping because they were the the, the they were the fed, you know the UCI was the, the the body that was supposed to be cracking down on on and on doping. But at the same time, the, the the simple fact of acknowledging that you have doping in your sport is hampering your sport. The, the best example of that was Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong for the UCI and for Hein Verbruggen was, you know, a blessing. He had everything you needed, star status, cancer survivor, winning the Tour de France seven times in a row, you know, and, and his voice was heard throughout the planet. 
Lance Armstrong made cycling 10 times more popular than it ever was before. So of course he cheated, of course he was a doper, and of course at, at some stage the UCI was prob- were, were probably aware of it, but it, it was bringing so much mm. popularity to the sport that the UCI were in two minds. What do we do? You know, we have these guys. It was, it was you know, the best promotion we ever had for our sport. If we reveal his doping, you know, uh, actions and uh, and misbehavings, uh, we 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 shooting ourselves in the foot. So yeah, part of the the Armstrong problem was that and. ASO saw in Armstrong kind of a, yeah, a weak spot they could use in their battle against the UCI and they were against Armstrong from day one. I mean, Jean-Marie Leblanc couldn't, couldn't stand uh, Armstrong and then when he was replaced by Christian Prudhomme it was even worse. Uh, Christian Prudhomme came, uh, so, well, took over from uh, Jean-Marie Leblanc which was an interesting shift because Jean-Marie Leblanc was the last, uh, you know, uh, written press journalist who has uh, been the race director. Yeah, yeah, had been the race director. Christian Prudhomme came from TV, so you could see the, the change mm. in the media uh, influence on the on the race. And and when Christian Prudhomme took took over, he kept repeating, "I'm going to crack down." You know, the UCI are not doing their job. We're going to crack down on doping, and we're going to t- take doping out of the sport. He he had to do that because of the Fessina scandal, 1998, of course. I mean. The, the, the leading team of the time, that the Festina team led by Frenchman Richard Virenque, they were kicked out of the race because, you know, drugs were found actually, or in, a, in a team car and then there were police raids and that's, that's when the police started to get into it. You know, doping became an offense and, and, and police in, in France, in Italy, started raiding team hotels and that's when everything changed. So Prudhomme said when he arrived, I'm going to, 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 to you know, I'm going to make sure there's no more doping in sport and to make do th- big statements yeah make big statements and he said to do that I have to kick out a few people from the from the sport and he named Verbruggen and he named then Pat McQuaid who, who, who took over from Verbruggen and the head of UCI as the guys he wanted out of the sport and then and then and also Manolo Saez I mean the guy who was involved later in 2006 yep. in the Puerto case who was the team manager of, of the of Spanish team Once so there was this this, this strong stance you know we're uh, ASO race organizers private race organizers we're going to you know clamp down on doping because the UCI are not doing their job and actually the, 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 uh, how did it end <laughs> you know well in a draw in a way because uh, that's when Mario Di Lamori you know the, uh, the the owner of the Tour de France came into the game and uh, uh, at the Beijing Olympics so that's 2008 uh, on, only two years after Christian Prudhomme is slowly introduced at the new Tour de France director that she she summoned a meeting between Pat McQuay, the UCI uh, president, and Christian Prudhomme and said, "Now you're going to, you know, settle your row because all this talk about doping and scandals and is 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 harming the sport. It's not doing and 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 it's harming the Tour de France. And the, I own the Tour de France. That's my business, and I don't want it to be ruined by doping allegation, doping stories, doping scandal all the time. So she said." The UCI, you know, uh, clean your, your, you know, clean your game. We, we want doping out of, of of the sport. And she told Christian Prudhomme, now stop talking about doping. That's not your job. You know, your job mm. is to promote the Tour de France. And uh, I think that that that's yeah, that, that, that's the situation we're in. We're out now. I mean, the UCI, the current UCI president is a Frenchman, David Lapartien, and he's often been seen and described as ASO candidate. You know, so. Mm. 
we're back to a situation where ASO and UCI work kind of hand in hand and are almost one and the same thing, which is actually going back full circle because this UCI was created by who? By Henri Desgranges, who is the founder of Tour de France. So in a way, you, you, those two entities that, that, that for a long time seemed rival from the start almost, you know, been one and the same thing. Let's just talk about now, lastly, where the race is at today um, and a big transition through that period, like you said, um, the Lance Armstrong period, of course, and then in in the late sort of 2007, just before 2010, we saw a real transition of the race. That's when I was sort of professional and I came into it and a lot of people told me that you're coming into a new world of, you know, we're talking about cycling as a whole here, not just the Tour de France. But I think it's when we saw, you know, the emergence of different styles of winners um, and a guy, Cadell Evans, who raced through a lot of that dark period and was viewed as a rider who was a bit strange, you know, doing things a bit differently. But I think we've found out now that was because he was he was clean. He was doing it his own way. And I think for me, he is a, a pinnacle rider to sort of show the new direction that the race went in, the Tour de France. And we saw these new winners. Yeah, I think that after the Festina scandal, there was a series of scandals that affected, you know, country by country. You had the, so France were, were affected by the Festina scandal and it took them 10 years to rebuild to find new a new generation of riders then you had the uh, Puerto scandal and Spain you know had to reinvent itself in cycling then beyond the risk on fast doping and then Denmark also had to you know find a new generation and we had the telecom scandal and then Germany kind of went out of uh, yeah. of cycling with uh, you know with Jan Ulrich and uh, Eric Zabel and all these guys and also had to reinvent itself and so gradually every country had their own doping scandal which helped them uh, you know find uh, a new way of doing the, 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 the their sport then of course uh, with the, 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 the team sky phenomenon when actually the the, the Brits were very clever in that sense identified you know kind of a sport with lots of weaknesses where you could go into and probably win the Tour de France within five years when I first heard in the it was in the Tour de France press room the, the uh, Team Sky project, you know, Bradsford's project of winning the Tour de France in five years, I told myself, <laughs> ah, well, those Brits, you know, they're what, what, really, really arrogant. Well, who, do you, who do they think they are? But they did it, you know, yeah. they did it. And how did they did it? Well, the way the sport has evolved, I already mentioned the tactics, the team strategy and everything, but also marginal gates might have been kind of a legend but 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 there's a there's a little bit of truth in there in which compared to Louison Bobet for instance or even if he was a guy who had a personal doctor and was training in what he thought were the scientific fashion of the time back then yeah back then but all, all today you know your diet everything the the uh, aerodynamics the, te- the the bikes uh power meters i mean all the equipment uh, the you know computers and 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 programs every you know everything's improved dramatically i mean the bikes you're using now you know bike guys nothing at all uh, you know you can't compare them at all with the the, the bikes eddie merce was, was riding on everything's better Everything. well the data too everything everything's got you know data around it you know i think and that it's accessible and it's able to be questioned i think by anyone i get the feeling that back in the day was you wouldn't question about a bike a bike maker about the bike he's made but now there's everyone's questioning everything because they've got access to the data about power about the aerodynamics about the nutrition 
you know, young guys now can research whatever they want on the internet and be be as smart as, you know, their director sportives in a way. That's right. And that's that's why we see younger riders coming up and, and winning the Tour at 21. And the, the, a lot of DSs I, 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 I've talked to about that, they say, well, that in, in, in back in the day when, when they, they, they started, you know, to coach a, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old rider, they didn't know anything. Mm. They, they didn't know anything about riding in the punch. They didn't know they, they, they had no technique, no nothing. These days, the, the, you know, they tell me they've got 16-year-old kids who can, you know, ride in a bunch, uh, very technically gifted. Also, but because they come from mountain bike, they yeah. come from cyclocross, they come from BMX, they come from different uh, kind of. Uh, uh, you know, cycling. Well, mo- yes, uh, yeah. For the other forms of cycling, and 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 they 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 kind of fully formed at seventeen. You know, they've got the best equipment. They've got. I'm amazed myself when I go sometimes. You know, up a mountain to watch a race, <laughs> and you see the young kids. You know, uh, riding up. They've, they've got it all, all the gear, you know. They got, look like mini pros, yeah, don't they? They've got like mini pros. I mean, very, very <laughs> lean, and and you can tell that these guys probably have protocols and uh, and, and and a diet and stuff. So so well, so that's a big, big difference from the the old days. Is that is that something though that you like to see, or is it something that sort of saddens you? That I don't know. For me, I wouldn't say saddens probably a bit harsh, but it's like. It's, it seems so intense for young guys now. You know, sort of taking that sort of beautiful, the love away from it in a way. But maybe not. Maybe that's what they love, the yeah, data. Yeah, it's, it's, it's less romantic probably. But mm. in the same time, uh, at the level of racing as in, as in, in you know, improved. We have a generation like with Tani Pogacar, Jonas Vingegaard, Wout van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel. Remo, uh, Remco Evenepoel. I can't remember that that such a dense quality mm. in in a word peloton as this. It's never been that good. So so the, it means exciting uh, riding. It means the the guys are clever. That they're, they're, they're personalities. You you know they're they're likable, which was not always the case in the past. So we have a tendency to romanticize the past, but in terms of the intensity of and the and the excitement of the competition, it's never been better. This said, the pressure you know these guys put on themselves from a young age is so, it's so hard that some there, there are types of riders they can't adjust to to, to this. I'm thinking Marcel Kittel or Tom Dumoulin, who you know gave up their career when they were actually almost at the top. I mean, I mean these two guys were yeah some of the most fantastic athletes we've seen in the past, and they just couldn't handle the life. As a professional, and the, and the constant pressure and stress it involved, and uh, yeah, I, it, uh, it came to me when I Tom Dumoulin announces, you know, he was giving up for good. That uh, Ian Marcel Kitter was probably the nicest guys yeah. I, 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 I I'd known in the in the in cycling, but I'm afraid cycling is not for nice guys. You know, it's a it's a tough guys sport. Where's the future of the Tour de France going, in your opinion? This is your last Tour de France as a journalist. I know you've got a lot of interest in the race, and you've got your ear to the ground. What have you heard? What do, what do they want to do with the race, and what do you predict they're going to do with the race? With all this sort of stuff we've spoken about, where athletes are going, cyclists, where do you predict the race will go from here? That's a general question, I know. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll change because the, the, dramatically, because in, in spite of everything we said and the uh, evolution and the improvements and everything, deep down it's it's the same race. Eighty percent of it is still the same. The the, the kind of circus going around France, the fans, uh, the excitement, the publicity caravan, uh, the the pressure that the 
the, the riders feel and the impression they have to be in a larger than life uh, sports event, which is you know second to none. Uh, it, this is not going to change, and I know that the organizers are just looking for. There's an approach that uh, we, we, well, because we discuss sports and business uh, a lot, but uh, there's the heritage uh, aspect mm. of the tour that's important, and organizers are and Christian Prudhomme and Thierry Gouvenoud, who is his uh, right hand, they're very aware that also there's there's a whole category of people who watch the tour who are not into cycling that yeah. much who, who are there to watch the Mont Saint-Michel the Eiffel Tower or you know all these monuments uh, and, and and that's that's a, that's part of the Tour de France and so we're going this this year back to Puy de Dome and it's also one of the things you know that Christian Prudhomme wanted to do go back to the iconic places where the tour uh, mm. history took place and so I think it's a, it's, they're looking for a mixture of uh, you know, nostalgia and, and, and futuristic, like we're also going to Col de la Loze, uh, you know, uh, in the Alps, which, which is actually a, 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 yeah, a mountain pass that's been created especially for riders. Uh, and, and at first it was used by, you know, mountain bikers. So it's, it's a, they're trying to, yeah, to, to, to find the right mix be- between the history, the past and the mm. nostalgia and the kind of a modernist approach to, uh, to um, to the sport and uh, the the thing I'm I'm really glad about as I as, as I'm about <laughs> to retire is that like 15 after the, the Fessina scandal and and like 15 years ago you had the impression that cycling was an old man sport I mean you know the interest in France and in Europe was m- more like you know yeah or, uh, over you know 50 plus uh, sometimes 60 plus fans <laughs> mostly males and that's changed. Totally. Completely, yeah, and, and that's great. And of course, the real future of, of the race is the girls. You know, uh, the, the the women's tour, uh, you know, started last year. It was a huge success on you know from day one, and the time was ripe for it. And the time is riper than ever. And uh, hopefully, I'm not saying we're going to have a three weeks women's tour soon, but you know, we gradually come into that, and it'll be it will be another exciting moment. Francois, thank you for your wealth of knowledge on the race. Um, I've been enjoying just sitting here listening to it. So uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, there was a lot there, guys, but I hope you enjoyed it. Francois, like I said to you, he is a great voice to listen to and such a wealth of knowledge. I really couldn't get any words in there, or nor did I need to. Thank you, Francois. I'm going to miss seeing you over here at the Tour de France. He is retired from the Tour de France this year, but you never know. I'm sure he'll be back. And I, as you can hear, he does really love the race. Big thanks to Will Jones, who puts these episodes together. The Life in the Peloton team, Meg and Spurlow behind the scenes. And guys, next week, I've got a great episode for you. It's a talking luft. It is the history of the Tour de France talking luft. While I was out there in the buses, I quizzed a few riders to hear how much they actually knew about the big race that they are in. So guys, until next week, and thanks to our big partner, Rafa, in the podcast. So guys, until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.